Amen. Thanks, Billy. Thanks, Jeff, for the reminder of uh, our mission. And uh, at Solid Rock, um, we, we don't say that missions is something to go do. We say it's a lifestyle to live. And so we don't go do missions. We live on mission. And I appreciate Jeff and the reminder to, uh, to live on mission. And as I was thinking about the struggle in my own life um, to share the gospel at times with people, um, what we're going to talk about today, I, I believe, is one of the primary reasons why uh, we, and if it's not we, it's at least me, uh, why I don't, why sometimes I shrink back, why sometimes I hesitate to share the gospel. So the way the gospel works, uh, this beautiful message that Jesus has come to the earth to live a perfect life, to take our sin and punishment to the cross, to die, to leave our punishment and shame and guilt in the grave and to resurrect from the grave, and that by believing on him, we could have forgiveness and eternal life. So the way that works is that when we hear that and we believe it, we are forgiven and we're saved. We're secured. The Holy Spirit of God seals our life. We're now adopted into the family of God. But then what happens from that point going forward is that we continue to grow in our knowledge of what the gospel really means, and therefore we continue to believe it more deeply. We grow in our knowledge, we grow in our faith and belief. Now we're a off on uh, black and white, this or that society, so it's hard for us to understand that this gospel that saves us every day is continuing to save us more deeply. Now, eternity is secured, but as we believe it more, it continues to transform us every day more and more. We are becoming what we already are in Christ. And so today, as we look at, uh, as we look at Paul's charge to Timothy from 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, as he carries that charge on into 2 Timothy and his letter to Titus, uh, we'll be wrapping up this part of the series by talking about a good conscience. So this is the last week in the uh, First and Second Timothy and Titus part of the series. Next week, we'll start First and Second Corinthians, and we'll look this summer at the marks of the church, what it means to truly be a church that follows and loves Jesus. So today, we're going we're gonna to end uh, by looking at this last thing mentioned by Paul to Timothy in verse 5 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy. He says, the aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what those phrases mean, to have a pure heart, to have a sincere faith, what we looked at last week. And, and so this week, we're going to look at a good conscience. Now, what happened last week is Paul defines what it means to have a sincere faith. He went personal into Timothy's life. We saw this in 2 Timothy 1, where he reminded Timothy that the sincere faith that he has first dwelt in his grandmother and in his mother, and it now dwells in him, and he goes personal into Timothy's life. Well, this week, Paul, in talking about a good conscience, is going to go personal into his own life and his own story, his own testimony. And the challenge is going to be for us who are Christians to believe the gospel even more, and for those who aren't Christians, that you might taste and see today that the Lord is good. So we're going to start by defining what it means to have a good conscience. Um, so we're going to first look at this biblical term uh, so that we're not caught up in the world's uh, definitions of consciousness or subconscience. Um, so that the biblical word that's being expressed here means this, to, the, to have the ability to distinguish between what is morally good and morally evil. That's a conscience. Okay? The ability to condone one thing and condemn another is the conscience of the soul. 
And so what Paul is charging Timothy to, and us as a church, is to a good conscience. So really to fully understand uh, where, uh, where this comes from, what's happening here, we really have to go all the way back to Genesis 2, which is the opening of the narrative of the Bible. Shortly after man is created, God gives man a moral law and says to the man, you can eat from any tree you see. Pick anything you want and eat it, except for, here's the moral law, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, that's an interesting name for a tree. That by eating it, you would come to a consciousness of what is good and what is evil. Before eating from the fruit, before breaking God's moral law, all that Adam knew was a good conscience. That's all he knew, right? God created and said what? It's good. It's good, it's good, it's very good. And to Adam, he had a consciousness of what was good. And until he broke God's moral law, there was no consciousness or no knowledge of then what is not good. This is what God says in Genesis 2, 7, but of the tree of the knowledge or the consciousness of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That somehow, with the knowledge now of evil, along with it would come death. And so what happens in the garden is there's a, there's a, there's a tempter, uh, a serpent, who comes to Eve and begins to tempt her to believe a lie, challenging her. Now, it's interesting because man was with her. That's what the word says. Man was there with her, and the serpent is tempting her to twist those words around. God didn't say you were going to die. Did God really say that? Is that really what God said? And she responds with, yes, what he said. He said, don't eat of it. Don't even touch it. And she kind of buys in, and the moral law gets twisted. And as Adam and Eve break God's moral law, there now is a consciousness of what is not good. Think about that. Before the fall, there was no need to hide, no need to cover up, no need to shift blame. And now all of a sudden, after breaking God's moral law, without anybody coming in and instructing Adam and Eve, here's how you cover up your past. Here's how you hide from God. They inherently, now that they had a consciousness of what was not good, what did they do? First thing they did, they tried to cover themselves. They took that deeper and did what? We need to hide. God comes walking in the garden and says, Adam, Eve, I need to talk with you. It's like when our kids are you know, playing hide-and-go-seek when they're like four. And they're like, come find me. <laughs> You can see their legs sticking out. And you're like, okay, I'm going to come find you. Adam and Eve are hiding from God that way. And he calls them out of hiding and says, who told you? Who told you to hide? See what he was revealing? Adam and Eve, I can see what happened. You now have a consciousness of what is not good. That's why you hid from me. What did Adam say? She did it. That, that woman that you gave to me, it's either her fault or your fault. I'm not sure which one. That woman that you gave to me, she's the one who talked me into doing this. Now, when it comes to a guilty conscience, um, because it's, uh, it's universally experienced among human beings, unless, unless you're just off mentally, but for the vast majority of us, when we mess up and we know it, we feel guilty about it. We feel a sense of, I need to hide that. I need to pretend like it didn't happen. Or I need to fix it. I need to do something because it's bothering me, okay? And so the, the world will offer to us in remedy then for a guilty conscience are some things like this. Nothing new under the sun. Hide it. 
Some of you right now are still using that to try to deal with a guilty conscience. Hide it. Cover it up. Make sure there's no evidence remaining, right? Put it in a closet. It's in the past. Cover it. Nobody needs to know. So we, we hide it. We pretend that it didn't happen. Um, one of the things that the world will tell us is that time will heal all things. It's not true. Absolutely not true. If anything, it makes it worse, but it certainly doesn't, doesn't get better. I'll give you an example in a minute of something from uh, my family's story. And then the last thing is to, uh, to blame shift, to somehow say, okay, 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 I did it, but here's why I did it. This is what Adam's doing with E. Okay, I did it, God, but like she, she talked me into it, you gave her to me, so somewhere along the way, this ultimately isn't my fault. And so then we blame it on circumstances or other people. I, it's always intriguing to me when somebody comes to me and says, I need to confess a sin. And I go, okay, well, let's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Catholic priest. I can't forgive you, but if you want me to hear you out, I can. And so, um, and so they'll go into confession, but confession starts with, well, let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you what she did, okay? So I need to, I need to get this off my chest. I need to confess this sin. I go, okay, let's, okay, let's do this. Share it to me. I'm going to remind you of the gospel. I'll pray for you. We're done. Well, see my wife. Wait a second. Are you confessing her sin or your sin? This happens a lot. And the reason why it happens in counseling so much is because it happens in our everyday life, in our everyday marriages. We get to this point where, okay, I'll own it, but it's somebody else's fault ultimately, right? And so this is is what the world tells us. Nothing is our fault. There's an explanation for everything. Um, If you can't find one, blame it on your daddy and and so on and so forth, okay? Um, But there's another tactic that the enemy has used from the beginning that I, I, I see us as a culture using, and that is if we can't get out from under the guilt of having violated the moral law, let's change the moral law. There's one way to not feel guilty anymore. Let's just change the law, which is what the serpent and Eve did, right? And then all of a sudden, we don't have to feel guilty anymore. And so in our current uh, culture, the, the worldview, the mindset is nothing then, therefore, is inherently good or evil. You can, you can actually... Read books on that, current philosophy that would say to us, nothing is inherently absolutely good or evil. Context determines whether or not it's good or evil. Now, on some cases, you, you, in some arenas, you might make a case for that. So if you said, okay, let's take the Ten Commandments. Uh, how about stealing? Is stealing always evil? Some people would argue, well, it depends. I mean, what if... Your family's about to starve to death, and you steal from somebody who has too much, and, uh, and so therefore you're feeding them to keep them alive, so therefore you could justify it. So context would say, stealing is therefore not evil anymore. I won't get into that debate. There's an example. But let me give you a couple of examples that won't work. Rape. There's never a context that you can share with me that would say rape is morally right. Right? So context doesn't get to decide that. And absolute morality says that it's always wrong. And if you don't believe that, uh, you don't have a daughter, right? Or something's messed up, right? So like in Nigeria right now, you've got, uh, is it Boko Haram, right? And they've kidnapped 200 to plus of these Nigerian little schoolgirls. Like there's never gonna be a context where that's morally good. It's absolutely morally Wrong. So the idea that if we can just create context where things 
aren't necessarily good or evil, we can somehow relieve our conscience. We don't have to feel guilty about it anymore. Why? Because we can justify it. Well, here's why I did it. The context means that it wasn't wrong. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm describing that, and automatically, surely you can think of examples in other people's lives where you've seen that happen, whether it's on the news or somebody you know personally. The challenge is to realize where we do that ourselves, to try to justify ourselves and say, if I can just change the morality, then I don't have to feel guilty about my past. I don't longer have to worry about what happens if something comes up. Now, Paul is going to serve for us as a fantastic example on how to live life with no sense of shame or guilt, no fear of walking around corners, right? No need to go back and make every wrong right, but instead to trust God and what he's done for us, to believe the gospel. Now, when it comes to examples from, from the New Testament on this shift from a guilty conscience to a clear conscience, we can find several of them. Um, I mean, to take Peter, for example. I mean, he's at the cross denying Jesus, felt pretty guilty about that, but then Jesus reinstates him, clear conscience. The Apostle Paul, however, I think serves for us as one of the most vibrant examples of what this looks like. I'm going to read 1 Timothy uh, chapter 12, um, excuse me, chapter 1, starting in verse 12 through 17, then we're going to come back and talk about what this means, first to Paul and then for us. So starting in verse 12, Paul's opening up his letter. He's just said to Timothy that the aim of our charge is a love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And then it's almost like Paul gets overwhelmed by his own testimony around verse 12 and just starts speaking personally about his own experience. He says, I thank him. This is verse 12, who has given me, given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Oh yeah, by the way, of whom I am the worst or the foremost. Verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And then Paul regroups his thoughts and gets back into the letter. Now, we're going to walk through that together. Now, one of the things that Paul warns Timothy of in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, is that there will come a day where man's consciousness will begin to become numb or hardened. And the word he used here is seared. In verse, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, uh, Paul reminds Timothy, now, in the, now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through insincere, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. People who've given into this idea that there is no moral right or wrong. Context determines everything. I am justified in anything I do or say to anybody else here on earth. A sense of numbness or hardness. And that's going to happen. Okay, And that's what Paul was reminding Timothy. The, the Holy Spirit clearly says that will happen in the end times. 
When we think about Paul, though, and all that he did against Jesus before he ever did anything for him. So we go back to Acts. In Acts 6, um, the church is getting so busy and overwhelming that a lot of ministry is happening. The apostles were like, we need some help. And so they choose some men to come help them. And among these men, they call to come serve and help the church. There's a man named Stephen. Okay, so really, to be honest with you, Stephen basically signed up to help serve food. Okay? Sure, I'll help set up tables and help feed people. A chapter later, he's arrested for his faithfulness to Jesus. Chapter 7. So in chapter 7, he's put on trial. Notice that you were feeding people at the church, setting up tables. Yeah. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you follow him? Do you profess him as the king of kings? And Stephen then beautifully preaches the gospel in chapter 7, which doesn't end well uh, for him. Uh, Here's how it ends. Uh, The religious leaders are there, and they listen to his testimony, and they say, ha-ha, you're condemned to death. And they throw Stephen from setting up tables to throw him in a hole, and they pick up rocks and throw them at him until he dies. It's called a death sentence. They kill Stephen. Now, Chapter 8, just after he dies and he breathes his last breath, look at how chapter 8 begins, verse 1, with Paul, who at this time was being referred to as Saul. Verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution. So Paul was there. He was the religious authority who gave the approval, kill him. Now, at this point, we don't know if he picked up a rock or not, but he was guilty of everybody who did pick up rocks. So it's like the woman who's caught in adultery and brought to Jesus, and the, and the religious leaders are there, like, Jesus, we need a stoner. She was committing adultery. And Jesus says, okay, whoever doesn't have any sin, you get to throw the first rock. And they all do what? Instead of stoning her, they drop their rocks and walk away. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Well, take that scenario, fast forward to Stephen, and Jesus isn't there. It's the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And so they say, you follow Jesus? You're going to die. And they look at Paul and go, Paul, what do you want to do? Stone him. Paul was there as Saul, and he approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the believers began to disperse. It's a great dispersion. Okay? One of those who disperses is Philip. And so the rest of chapter Eight is Philip. He first he's headed to Samaria. He shares the gospel with this magician who who becomes a believer in Jesus and then follows him around. And then God tells him to run up next to this chariot with an Ethiopian. He does so. This is where he shares the gospel with this guy in a chariot. The Ethiopian pulls over. They spend some time in the in the prophet Isaiah. He leads him to Christ. He baptizes him. Okay, this is chapter eight unfolding. But then chapter nine hits in Acts. Starts with these words. But Saul, back to Saul again. But Saul. Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here's what's happening. Saul is not just willing to persecute the church. He is ambitiously, as part of his career, pursuing to kill Christians to bring the church to an end and step out, stamp out all those who are following Jesus. And he's willing to do it to the extent that he will throw people in a hole and have people throw rocks on them to kill them, that he will go house to house 
dragging men and women out. Now, to fully feel the impact of what's happening here, I mean, we have to visualize this. He's got letters in hand, officially approved. He's going house to house. Let me speak to so-and-so. I heard that this person follows Jesus. person comes to the door. Do you follow Jesus? Is that true? Then you're coming with me. Now, this wasn't civil, search warrants, arrest warrants, peaceful. This was dragging people out of their homes, kicking and screaming, pleading for their lives, into prison, into trial, to a death sentence, men and women. Think about how many men Saul or Paul looked in the eyes. You're coming with me. But I, what, what's going to happen to my family? I don't care. You're coming with me. But who's going to take care of my wife and my kids? I don't care. You're coming with me. How many snapshots are embedded in his memory of those experiences? The screams of wives as their husbands are drug off. The screams of moms as the moms are drug off. Kicking and screaming and pleading for their lives. But who will take care of my kids? Even children, we know from church history, were drug out of homes and persecuted for following Jesus. And Saul was the primary person there overseeing it, organizing it, approving it. And pursuing it. That's the guy writing 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Snapshots, eye contact, tears, the voices of screaming children and women and men ringing in his ears. If, if anybody was prone to a guilty conscience, right, to be haunted by their past, to feel shackled and, 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 and unworthy to be involved in what Jesus is doing, right? This is why he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he starts the letter in verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Now, how does he do that? How do you... Walk with a clear conscience after having done and seen and heard and been a part of so many dark moments of torment and torture. Pause. Now, it's a pretty good chance nobody in this room has a past as dark or shameful as Paul's. Now, you may, and you want to have coffee, we can talk it through, it's fine, right? But let's just be honest, right? Yet, we still struggle to walk in a good conscience. Sins from our past still haunt us and shackle us and whisper lies to us. There are still things in a vast majority of our lives in here that we still have penned up in a closet that we hope to God nobody ever discovers. And I know it's true because of the ministry God's called me to to counsel with the people of God. And as I hear people sharing their stories, I'm reminded, oh, crud, I have a story too. So, so Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he, sh he shifts into this personal testimony moment here, starting in verse 12. Let's walk through it. He says to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service. Stop there for just a minute. What he's not saying is that Jesus came to me and he was so impressed with my resume that he said, whoa, you're a faithful guy. I'm judging you as faithful. 
This is more of a judgment of making a decision, despite Paul, that Jesus made a decision to climb into ministry anyway. He judged him. He decided, I've decided, Paul, I'm going to make you faithful and therefore appoint you to serve in my kingdom rather than be this opponent. And look at how Paul describes who he used to be. See, the vast majority of us, um, we, we default to general terms. Jesus saved me from my sins. Okay, cool. What sins? Well, some really bad ones. But which ones? Well, you don't have time. Well, I just, I did some things, you know, you wouldn't believe. And so that's about as far as we go into the reality of who we used to be. I love how Paul just goes for it. He doesn't pretend, right? He doesn't just go, yeah, I used to be a bad guy. Let's move on. He, he lets you know who he used to be. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, okay, this is a person who speaks evil on purpose. You blast people with evil. A blasphemer, a persecutor, this is a person who intentionally causes repeated pain, both emotionally and physically. That's who I used to be. I intentionally caused people pain. That's an honest confession. That's not justifying and saying, well, that's what my boss told me to do, or that's, you know. He's saying, no, 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 I did. This is what I did. I intentionally caused people pain and harm. I was insolent. This is the idea of publicly humiliating somebody with either your actions or your words. It happened to Jesus at the cross. They, they treated him with insolence. They treated him that way. When they hurled their insults at him, they were humiliating him in public, and they also, like, Physically, like pulled his beard out and put, you know, this crown of thorns on it. They physically tormented him with humiliation. Paul says, that's, that's who I used to be. Not softening it up at all. Verse 13, second part of verse 13, but. This is where it happens. How do you go from being that to now being this bold apostle with a clear conscience? It's right here at the butt. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to take a moment here because I think we, even in the church, we present the idea of God's mercy and grace as far too cheap both in our own lives and wholesale in the church. So let's talk for a minute what it means to be extended mercy and to be extended grace. Just a basic definition. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Okay? Not receiving what you deserve, what you've earned. So had Saul, Paul, more than earned God's punishment? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. And so by Paul saying, I received mercy, what he's saying is what I earned for my life, God didn't give unto me. Now, because God is a just God, there still had to be a payment for that sin. And what does Paul do? He goes, that's, that's what the cross was for. What you saw happen to Jesus was supposed to be happening to me for my insolence and my persecution. The fact that I denied who God was, the fact that I worked against him. All of my dark past, God dealt out a punishment for that. He just didn't deal it out to me. Because see, he extended me mercy for the time when I acted in ignorance and unbelief. 
But the second part is this. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me. So on a basic understanding of what grace means, it means to be merited something you don't deserve. So while mercy is not receiving a punishment that you deserve, grace is extending something to you that you haven't earned. The two work together. And so what Paul is saying happened at the cross is that because of his, uh, because of his sin, because of the shame and the guilt and, and the darkness of his past, the fact that he was at one time known in the region as the chief of sinners, what had happened? By believing the gospel, God transferred that punishment, that wrath that, that Paul more than earned, and he transferred it to Jesus at the cross. That was mercy. But then he says, from the cross overflowed grace. God gave me things I don't deserve. A new life, a new start, the joy of living in community, spiritual giftings, the Holy Spirit, a calling into the ministry. I didn't deserve that. That was God's grace that called me to serve. So this is that point where um, I think it's beautiful in church where we have people who are now serving Jesus with these, these, these huge testimonies. And everything about the life story and testimony would say, don't trust this person. Don't you dare let them serve and don't you trust them. They've got a sketchy past. They've been known to be deceitful. They've been known to backstab. They've been known, right? But grace says, I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. I'm going to give you a position in my kingdom. In a real intimate way, you know what God the Father says to you through his grace? I'm going to give to you a place at my table. Not just as somebody I know who I led in off the street, but as my son or daughter. I provided a place at the table for you. That's grace. That's unmerited favor from God to you. And Paul says, you want to know how I went from that to this with a clear conscience? I believe the gospel. There's no other explanation. Okay, well, we get that, Paul. But what kind of therapy are you going to? Right? What kind of counseling have you been in? Paul says, I put myself under the counsel of the gospel every day. The gospel counsels me. And I believe it more and more. And the more I believe it, the more set free I am in my mind to live and walk with a clear conscience. Then he says in verse 15, he stops and says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's almost like Paul is saying, okay, hold the phone for just a second. I need to say something, Timothy, before we move on. He stops and he says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. How did you get to where you are, Paul? Jesus came to the world to save sinners. And oh, by the way, I'm the worst one. Well, how did, no, how did you get to where you are today? I believe that. I have no other remedy for my guilt or my shame. I have no other way to, to covering my past, hiding. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. Everybody knows what I did. Right? I, I, can't, I can't go with that option. Everybody knows who I was. So I'm going to own it. Because I believe that Jesus came to the world to save sinners and set them free. Brother, I was the first one in line. I'm, I am the foremost of those who needed the mercy and grace of Jesus. And so really, struggling with a guilty conscience 
shame or guilt boils down to a belief. Okay? This is one of my, um, this is where my heart breaks oftentimes, talking with somebody who, who isn't a Christian. And, and I never want to, you know, bully somebody into becoming a Christian or anything like that. But talking with somebody who says, well, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Christian, I wonder at the end of the day, what do you do with your shame? Because, like, and, and to be honest with you, that's what sets Christianity primarily, distinguishes it from any other world religion, is that by faith we can be cleared of our conscience. We don't have to work at it and repay and make everything right before we can put our head down at the pillow at night and go to sleep in peace. We can do so by faith alone. And so I, I, my heart breaks oftentimes when I'm talking with somebody and we're just talking analytically about what it means to have faith or being you know, a follower of Jesus. And then I realize, like, I'm just like, God, you know, here's the thing for me. Like, I have no other remedy for my shame or guilt. Nothing. I've tried going back. I've tried going back and making wrongs right, and it doesn't work. It doesn't. I've tried not doing it again so many times in a row that maybe I would be then, you know, set free and not have to worry about it because I did this thing wrong, but I've done it right a hundred times right. Now I'm, I get to like number two and I mess up again. I've tried it. I've tried hiding my sin. Um, I'll never forget the, the time that this became just a very clear reality. I became a Christian at a somewhat young age, and so for a lot of reasons, I hadn't, I don't have the rap sheet that maybe Paul has, okay? Um, but shortly after I became a believer, my mom became a Christian, and, uh, and so she was almost, she was in her upper 30s. Actually, she was about the age that I am now, and, and really had experienced some things in life and had, had accrued some shame and guilt over some things. And one of the things, I'll never forget when she came to me and she shared something with me that had happened to her when she was, well, happened to her and she participated in. When she was uh, 16, she got pregnant in high school. And because of the, here we go, all the reasons, the cultural pressure, because of the influence of what her parents wanted, but ultimately her own embarrassment over what had happened, uh, her, my mom and my grandparents got in a car and drove over to New Mexico and she had an abortion and, and, and my mom had never spoken a word of it since. That was when she was 16. So 20 years later, now she's a believer, and she finally has a place to put her shame. She finally has a place to talk about and say, listen, I've done these things, but I'm forgiven. And she came to me, and she shared it with me. and said, Jason, I want you to know something. Before I was pregnant with you, I was pregnant another time, and I thought she was going to say, you know, I had a miscarriage, but she said, no, I had an abortion. Time doesn't heal anything. She actually shared that testimony in front of the church. And there were people like, whoa, that's too big for church. Really? Then you need to go talk to the Apostle Paul and tell him to quit writing his stuff down. And, and the point is this. We either believe it or we don't. Church, you either believe it or you don't. You either agree with the gospel or you don't. You know what the gospel says of us? We are dirty, lousy, bent towards evil people who love exalting ourselves. That's what the gospel says. And at the same time says that God has made a way for you to be set free from all that. To experience a life free from shame and guilt and condemnation. To experience true love, true joy. Free from shame or guilt. No longer hiding your past. Paul 
Paul says in verse 16, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe in him. So if anybody looked across and went, was that really necessary? I mean, all that suffering and punishment, Paul would go, yeah, right here. It was needed. And then we would go, oh, wait a second. If I want to be honest, it was needed for me too. That's, that's some of my sin right there. To serve in his example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Verse 17, I love where Paul goes next. It's like his soul just, you can kind of feel the tone of voice increasing, the volume increasing. He erupts in worship at the end of this as he's reminded of the grace that has overflowed to him. He ends in verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, Timothy, back to the letter. Now, we're going to do that in just a minute. We're going to respond to the gospel in worship that way. Before we do, I've got a couple of questions I want to run through for you to just think about on, on your own and, and be challenged with. As we were talking today, um, I'm just wondering if anybody like me still struggles with a guilty conscience. And, and by that, I mean, are there still things from your past that haunt you? Are there still things in your past that you keep in a closet, you keep under wraps, you hope never come up again? Do you ever think to yourself, if these people in here knew the things that I've done, they wouldn't love me? You ever tempted to believe that? Some of you are haunted by a guilty conscience of what happened this morning. And you still struggle with, if I don't do a good job of hiding this and covering up the evidence, they'll never love me. Maybe here's a question to ask you. Maybe you would think like Paul, how has Christ demonstrated his mercy and love to me? Maybe today would be a day for you to bring that in worship to the Lord and say, oh, thank you for setting me free. Paul writes in Romans 8, 1, he says this, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I would ask you today, if you're still struggling with things from your past, what from your past is bigger than the cross? That's what it boils down to. If, if there's something in your life that you don't believe God can ever forgive you for, what you're saying is the cross wasn't big enough. It wasn't bloody enough. It wasn't brutal enough. There wasn't enough suffering in what Jesus experienced to cover my sins. That's what you're indirectly saying. And I would say, what from your past is bigger than that? What if instead of trying to pretend that these things didn't happen and trying to keep these things suppressed and hidden, what if instead we believed the gospel and walked in freedom? Well, that just sounds too good to be true. By definition, that's what mercy and grace are, by the way. Right? I mean, if it's not too good to be true, then it's a barter system of some sort. You're trading it, this for that. Mercy and grace would say to you, if you are going to believe in me, you're going to believe in something that's too good to be true. Really? To get something I don't deserve and to have somebody else take my punishment? Like, that's too good to be true. And Jesus says, oh, absolutely. That is the only message of the cross. Anything else is not the gospel.
you know, maybe today God is challenging you uh, to talk about something from your past for the first time. You know, the word of God calls us to confess our sins one to another. Do you know that by confessing your sins one to another, you're no more forgiven by God? It's not the reason why you're called to do that. You know why I believe we're called to be honest about our past with one another? Because we're challenged to believe the gospel, period. When I come to you in honesty and say, here's where I'm struggling or I have struggled, here's where I, me, no justification, not Hallie's fault, not circumstances, not my kids, not my daddy's fault, my fault, I did this. When I come to you and I'm honest about it, what I'm saying is I, I believe the gospel. I agree with the gospel. I mean, the gospel already told you that I was, right? Pretty messed up. All I'm doing is agreeing with it. And so maybe today God is challenging you to talk about your past, not to get forgiveness, but to walk in freedom, to say these things no longer have bondage over me. Um, you know, maybe today is the day you go talk with your spouse. Maybe there's something that you've kept hidden and suppressed, maybe for all your marriage. Maybe something happened before your marriage or happened early on in your marriage. And all you've been doing is hiding and suppressing it. And all the while it's been haunting you, nipping at you sometimes daily, weekly, monthly, reminding you of how dirty and rotten you are and how you can't be trusted. And, and maybe today's the day you go, go get with your spouse and say, listen, I need to share this with you. I have no intention to hurt you, but I'm gonna share it with you because I believe I've been set free from it and I've been hiding it from you. And if you need some more verses to go read, go read 1 John chapter one. Start around verse five all the way down through like verse 12. Maybe today's the day you go home, you write a letter. Today's the day you go home, make a phone call, you set up a meeting, you call a family member, call a parent. Maybe today you want to come talk with one of our prayer partners, somebody you've never even met before, and go, I just need to get this off my chest. They're, they're prepared for that, okay? They believe the gospel too. You're not going to shock them. And if you just need to get something off your chest and say, listen, I just need to share this with somebody so you can pray over me, fantastic. But the point isn't that we just go around, right, telling people how bad we are. The point is that we believe the gospel, and that we're no longer hiding from our past. But we own it. Why? Because I, I'm now walking with a good conscience. I believe I've been set free. I can talk about my past. I can tell you who I used to be. It's not who I am anymore. What do you mean it's not who you are? Well, I believe the gospel. The gospel says that when I believe it, it transforms me. It makes me into a new person. It's not who I am anymore. I want to end here. Uh, we're about to sing... Uh, and, and so I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward and our prayer partners to come down. Um, but I want to end just by um, sharing one thing with you and praying. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, and this whole time you've been wondering, what do I do with my shame or my guilt? Like if I become one and they know who I've been in the past, they'll never accept me. Okay, If that's something you've been thinking, um, hopefully today uh, that's been put to rest. And today, God has extended an invitation for you to be set free from that, to something that's too good to be true, to be given mercy, right? So today, what God wants to do is to say, everything that you deserve for your life, tell you what, I'm going to put it on Jesus. How's that sound? That's too good to be true. Yes, that's the gospel. And then God would say to you, how about this? I give you so much that you don't deserve that you'll have no other answer but God's grace. That's, that's the gospel today. And so by believing, 
that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, leaving the punishment of your sin there, freeing you from shame or guilt. By believing that, the Bible says you are set free and you are saved and you are forgiven, you are made clean and you are made new right now. So I'm gonna pray for us and I, I hope that if that's a decision you haven't made, you would make it today. And we're gonna respond in worship. God, thank you for this beautiful gospel that sets us free. And, and God, we're so honest about the struggle to believe it at times, especially knowing our own rap sheets, God. We can't imagine how you would still love us. We can't imagine that you would want us in your family. If, if God, if, if you only knew, if the people only knew how just how dark and how dirty our thoughts have been, how obstinate we have been against you, God. You would never want us. And, and God, we, we realize, just like Adam and Eve hiding in the garden, that we're like four-year-olds trying to play hide-and-go-seek with parents in that. But God, you see us in our hiding. Thank you for seeing us in our hiding, God, and for not being embarrassed and not turning your head, but coming to us instead sending your son Jesus to call us out of hiding, to call us out of shame and guilt to the mercy and grace of the cross. God, this morning I pray for any person who doesn't know you that today would be the day, today would be the day that they would come to you in faith and say, okay, I trust you. It's still too good to be true. It's still more than I can comprehend, but I trust you today. God, you would meet that person where they're at forgiving their sins, setting them free from shame and guilt and giving them a new life, a new life that's only found in you. Holy Spirit, come move among us now as we stand to sing. We pray in Jesus' powerful name.